Welcome to the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. Welcome to ITSP Magazine. Let's face it, the future is now. We're living in a connected cyber society, and we need to stop ignoring it or pretending that it's not affecting us. Join us as we explore how humanity arrived at this current state of digital reality and what it means to live amongst so much technology and data. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. Black Cloak provides concierge cybersecurity protection to corporate executives and high net worth individuals to protect against hacking, reputational loss, financial loss, and the impacts of a corporate data breach. Learn more at blackcloak.io. BugCrowd's award-winning platform combines actionable contextual intelligence with the skill and experience of the world's most elite hackers to help leading organizations identify and fix vulnerabilities, protect customers, and make the digitally connected world a safer place. Learn more at bugcrowd.com. And here we are. Wow, this is going to be a good conversation. And not that the others are not, because I have to be honest, I, I'm very selective in the people I bring on the show, especially on Redefining Society, where I often run the show by myself without Sean, and we don't have a, you know, the two of us supporting each other. So, you know, you, you have to have a good guest to have a good conversation. And I have no doubts about that. It's a person I know. It's a, a co-mentor on the Mentor Project. I need to sh do a shout out for, for them, but also uh, a, a former astronaut, although I don't think you can ever be a former astronaut. Once you're an astronaut, you're an astronaut. <laughs> and a lot of other things is uh, my friend, uh, Charlie Camarda, and he's joining us from uh, space, or wh where are you? Are you in space now? I'm in, I'm in Virginia Beach, Marco. All right, good. You're, I'm so you're on, down to Earth. Yeah. On planet Earth. Good. <laughs> well, I'm so glad you're here. So I need to think about two different audiences. One is the people that are listening to the podcast, and one is the people that are actually watching the, the podcast. So those have already seen you and the others. They are going to need a, a little introduction. If we're showing some books, if we're showing some reference in the video, you know, it's kind of like a show and tell. I'll, I'll have to explain what we're doing. And, you know, maybe they can watch the video later. But again, Charlie, we are on um, redefining society, which is connected with technology. And, and the reason why we're going to have this conversation here, and I thought this was the right container, is because we're talking about culture. And in, in this case, about culture in research, in the way we use technology, in the way maybe we analyze uh, and take risks, and especially, of course, in uh, how we do that when we send people in, uh, in space. So before we dig in into all of this, I'd like for you to say hello to the audience and to introduce yourself. I, I always like people to introduce themselves because they do such a much better job than when I do it. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Marco. And yes, my name is Charlie Camarda. I flew on STS-114. I was a mission specialist on shuttle. It was the flight right after the first Columbia accident. Um, before that, I was a research engineer at NASA Langley Research Center for 22 years. 
Uh, I had a midlife crisis. I saw where NASA was going and I said, well, we're not doing as much research. Let me try something else. So uh, uh, afraid of heights, claustrophobic and, and could barely swim. And I said, well, why don't I rekindle my childhood desires to be an astronaut and apply? What the heck? And I was accepted. I was uh, I flew on space shuttle uh, with an amazing commander, amazing crew. Eileen Collins. We captured her podcast that we'll chat about a little bit. Oh yeah, on, on leading edge discovery. And uh, after I flew, I was director of engineering. I went on to become a deputy in the NASA Engineering and Safety Center, and then senior advisor for engineering and innovation. And now I'm totally retired from NASA. Three years and enjoying life, sitting down and writing down my thoughts on a book, on several books. So you, you are retired, but your, your, your mind and your brain is still very active on the topic. Let's, let's put it that way. You, you haven't really like, you know, left the past I have, behind. <laughs> I haven't let it go. I haven't let it go, Marco. Well, and this is actually going to be a conversation around, I guess, what you did not let go. Let's put it this way. So your experience, and I have to mention if I'm not wrong, that you were the oldest rookie ever to fly in uh, in space, right? Uh, you you say you had a midlife crisis, right? I, I think that could be my only claim to fame <laughs> or, or uh, is that I was the oldest rookie. I was actually 53 years old when I flew in space uh, and uh, very, very blessed uh, to be able to have that opportunity. Well, isn't that an inspiration for, you know, all our middle-aged <laughs> people here? Uh, and, and you touched on that also in your conversation on your first episode, by the way, on, you know, how how people get into STEM, how people can contribute to the exploration of space coming from different angles, the, the, the psychological angle, the research, you don't need to be the pilot as it used to be. So we, we'll, we'll talk about that. So the, the core of the conversation for me rotates around your new show, which is on ITSP magazine that we will talk about. Your first episode you had on the show with Commander Aileen Collins, and I just re-listened to that, such an inspiration such a wonderful person and some really important lesson on leadership there that I would like for you to, to reintroduce uh, to our audience, a tease maybe, because they should then listen to the episode. And then an article that you wrote right before the 20th anniversary of the Columbia tragedy on the New York Post. And they all go around to what I said that's why you're not really retired because you you are on a mission. So, what what is the core? What is the the reason why you're doing what you're doing now? And I know you're writing a book too, but you know you can yeah. tease about that if you like. No, um, th thank you, Marco. And and the whole reason for that article that came out in the in the New York Post in the technology section was because we were coming up on the 20th anniversary of the Columbia accident. And I lost seven friends uh, during that time I was training in Russia. And I'm watching on LinkedIn and other social media posts, these program managers from the space shuttle program pontificating and, and speaking from on high as if 
they know what was wrong with the culture and they changed the culture when really they were the cause of a very, very dysfunctional culture. And I only touch on it because the article in the New York Post was very short. And what I want to eventually do is little by little post on social media and LinkedIn all the ways that NASA failed, that the NASA Engineering and Safety Center failed, how they never really were able to satisfy the recommendations of the Columbia Accident Investigation Board, and return us to what I believe were the glory days of NASA, the very early days of NASA during its inception in 1958, when it really had that research culture, that research DNA that was transferred to it, uh, encoded in the new NASA when it was born in 58 by these uh, amazing research leaders from Langley and Glenn that developed Johnson Space Flight Center uh, and developed the manned space program. And then how we lost that culture, totally devastated that culture by not funding research, uh, discretionary research for the past 28, 35 years actually. And how that's not only a NASA problem, but it's a United States problem, and we're watching that play out. So there is one thing that stuck in my head when I was listening to your conversation with, with Eileen, and it's um, actually it was related to someone that wrote a book. I want to start right there about the psychology of uh, risk. Let's, let's put it that way. And, and how then in an organization you could get to a point where from a psychological perspective, she, she called it, and I don't remember the author, I'm sure you can say that for me, normalization of deviance. And, and I think that's kind of like the, the key factor here on how things were not right, but we all pretend, they all pretended they were right. They were not perfect, but they pretended it was perfect. It was risking the, what you were doing way too many risks. I know you stood up on a certain point for that and you pay for it. Um, but everybody just pretended like, you know, it's kind of like that, that little cartoon you see with the dogs drinking a coffee and there's fire and say, everything is fine, right? It's so like, yeah, so it's does like it make more... sense that it rotate around that, the normalization of, of deviance? Because it's not normal. In my opinion, it's not normal. Yeah, and, and you're absolutely right, Marco. And that author is an amazing woman named Diane Vaughn. And Thank you. the title of her first book that she wrote was Challenger Launch Decision. And I'm showing it up for the audience right here. And you could see you could see how I've read and reread this book. <laughs> you studied right? it. You studied I it. I studied it. And that's what you really have to do. And that's typically what engineers and program managers will never do. Um, and, but that's what you have to do to immerse yourself and understand totally different culture, how these people analyze what they're seeing. And they do it in a very objective way. Diane Vaughn was a sociologist. She worked for 10 years doing her PhD dissertation, tens of thousands of lines of, of transcripts that she read, interviews with hundreds of people in order to understand a culture which was very foreign to her. And she did a very good job coming very close to identifying this culture. She was also very gracious and never pointed a finger at any one name, but blamed everything on the culture. I wouldn't have been as nice as 
my good friend, Diane Vaughn. Um, she talks about normalization of deviance and how these researchers in their quest in this production culture to constantly fly meet budget and schedule pressures have to come up with what they call a flight rationale right? A reason that we are safe to fly. And back then it was supposed to be, you have to prove you are safe to fly. And right now, which you have to prove that we're unsafe to fly. And oh, by the way, the cards are stacked against you as a double standard. It's much harder for you to prove the case that we're not ready to fly. And that's another whole story. Diane Vaughn called something called normalization of deviance. In other words, shuttle was a very poor design. It's a very unsafe vehicle. Yeah, people touted it as an amazing vehicle. It's totally unsafe. Uh, the probability of, of failure is one in 67, all right? That that would that you would die. You would lose your life. That's a pretty shuttle. high risk. It's a pretty high risk. I don't think we're going to commercialize space and fly families on space vehicles if we have no. that kind of risk, right? No, I wouldn't and go. So, and so one of the major problems was shuttle was designed so that it was never supposed to shed external tank foam, it was supposed to come off the vehicle and potentially impact the orbit of vehicle. And for those out there, this is what the orbit of vehicle looks like. It's the little white ship with wings that the crew flies in. It was never supposed to impact the vehicle. So from the very first day, we almost lost the first flight with Bob Crippen and John Young, serious damage to the very fragile thermal protection tiles on the belly of the vehicle. NASA had to come up with a plan. They started developing probabilistic risk assessment, which was really, in my mind, uh, a strategy to help them come up with a number for risk that made them feel comfortable and they could say we're okay to fly. But more importantly, the normalization happens because bad things happen and the foam comes off, which is the deviant behavior, but the orbiter doesn't fail. We land safe. So the human uh, mind is it's success bias. We have a bias towards success. If we mm. success after success, we think we understand the problem. We think we're going to be safe. And so that becomes less serious to us. And, and so the normalization of deviance was one of, I categorized about 30 or so terms that different sociologists, psychologists, behavioral scientists started to coin um, you know, cognitive scientists, cognitive biases and things like that. And I could distill it down to a couple of very simple terms, arrogance and what I call a research culture. Another very well-known author from Harvard Business School, Amy Edmondson, talks about psychological safety. And psychological safety is so important for you to be able to be a learning organization, for you to work together in a high-performing team. It creates an environment where there's uh, you're allowed to take interpersonal risk without fear of recrimination, without fear of career, loss of dignity. And it's an environment where everyone has a voice, everyone has to be listened to, and both of those ideas and many of these other terms that the, these sociologists and psychologists coin are totally embodied by what I call a research culture. I think we can connect here with 
Well, first, the fact that I was I never thought about it. I mean, I'm a, I, I come from political science, sociology, but I've always loved space, like exploration. Maybe because I was born in 1969, so I always connect with the moon landing, even if I was very, very little when that happened. <laughs> so, but, but uh, I was kind of never thought that the space shuttle actually was never tested on men. The first flight was actually let's put people on it. And I think that was kind of a first in the history of, of NASA because it kind of goes against the old principle of let's put men, women, human race on the moon and let's bring them back safely. That, that sentence always stuck in my head. But to do that, you need to test. And from your conversation with Eileen, which I would like you to kind of talk about that on your as you did on your first episode, do a little summary of that. There is the difference in, in the research and then prove it by analysis versus test it, like physical testing. You spend a lot of time with Eileen on, on that. And yeah. I, I, I think it's like the core also of your research conversation, right? So yes. can you tell yes. us a little it bit more about that? A absolutely, Marco. And that's why I thought this would be such a great episode to kick off the Leading Edge Discovery podcast series on ITSP, because we're going to dive into more and more of these researches so that people understand the difference between a research engineer and a very good, very capable engineer. And so you touch upon something very important, because you're absolutely right. And Eileen spoke about it in the first episode of the podcast series about how John Young and Bob Crippen climbed onto that vehicle and it had never been flown before in space. We did some drop tests with just the orbiter, but it had never been flown in space. These were the most courageous men oh. that I will ever, ever meet. And, and if I could relate uh, a quaint little story, I have John Young is my hero. Uh, uh, I've had the for good fortune to fly back seat in, in the T-38 with John going to the Cape. And John was the ultimate engineer. He would, he would not go through management. He would go directly to the shop floor in the orbiter processing facility with the orbiter vehicle up above your head, talk directly to the engineers working on that vehicle to find out what was wrong. And so, yes, this was the first time we took that risk and did that, right? And so the difference, when we started losing our research DNA, right, it first started when we developed the space agency, Mercury and Gemini, Gemini. the minute we started building much more complex vehicles like Apollo and like the LEM and going to the moon, we had hundreds and thousands more people involved, complex systems. We had engineers from many, many different organizations building hardware. So those great German engineers, right? The Von Brunn, when he started the Army Ballistic Missile Agency, which turned into Marshall Space Flight Center, they wanted to do testing in-house. They wanted to do testing of components, which is how researchers do testing. It's, a, it's what we call a building block approach. You look hundreds and hundreds of tests, doing them rapidly, inexpensively, quickly learning 
the knowledge you needed to know to understand how they would fail. They had to go away from that. And NASA, in order to meet schedule and budget, were doing full-up tests of Apollo, something uh, the Germans, uh, uh, rocket scientists, and researchers at Langley, the Max Viget and, and Bob Gilruth's, totally did not want to do. And so we started gradually leaving that research culture and going into this production culture. And somehow we thought we understood this and we could fly safe using this technique. And unfortunately, that's not the case. But, and yet, Space Shuttle flew 135 missions. So is it kind of like luck or closing your eyes and hoping things go well? Because well, another thing, sorry, like it was supposed to shut down the program in 2020, if I'm not wrong, but it did shut down in 2011. And and he almost got shut down after the second accident because Colombia wasn't the first one either. Right, right. And so remember, how do you bring how do you keep going? Like is that political? Is that economical? Is that become it, a business? I don't know. I mean it's 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 political, it's a business. Uh, NASA had to keep going to build the space station. So all that right. schedule and budget pressure that was there during uh, the beginning of the Apollo program to beat the Russians, that same schedule and budget pressure that was there for Columbia Challenger remained during Columbia. Because if we were to shut down after uh, STS-107, Columbia, we would have not completed construction of the space station, right? So NASA had to figure out a way, how do you do this? And in my mind, you know, in the article, I say, um, you know, we never... You know, the, the words that stuck in my mouth when NASA didn't put it, NASA put, didn't put its guard up it, it, or let its guard down. It in my mind, it never put its guard up. And really, the fight was fixed because they really brushed aside everything that the Diane Vaughn had said, the good people that were making these recommendations. And if the audience uh, goes back and researches and pulls up an article entitled NASA Revisited by Diane Vaughn, what you will hear Diane Vaughn say in this article is that when these NASA researchers, eight months after the Columbia accident, all had a meeting, the top 40 senior people at NASA at Y River in Maryland, right? And the administrator at that time, Sean O'Keefe, commands the audience and says to the people, you know what? You have to read the Cape Columbia Accident Investigation Report with a grain of salt. There's a lot in there that's not correct. And mm -hmm. we have to determine not how we fully comply with the recommendations of the CABE report, but how can we legally comply with the recommendations? So he's basically telling the senior leaders at NASA, you know what? Uh, we're going to just barely minimally comply just to get us back up and flying. And sure enough, they really never did satisfy the key recommendations by the CAVE committee. The organization Sean O'Keefe put in place called the NASA Engineering and Safety Center uh, was not independent and it was not a technical authority as recommended. As a matter of fact, half the time they fought and impeded people from identifying problems and raising issues. They prevented 
Um, they prevented their voices from being heard. And I know this for a fact because I was in, I was the deputy in that organization. And I found a problem with the wing leading edge. And I basically had to go to FOIA, Freedom of Information Act, and this is the letter I sent for the Freedom of Information Act in order to get data to prove that we were flying and continuing to fly vehicles with defective wing leading edges. So these, this was the new organization. So NASA minimally complied with these recommendations in order to finish the construction of space station. And then STS-135 was the last mission we completed construction of space station, we, we retired space shuttle. Many people said we shouldn't. They're absolutely out to lunch wrong because the wing leading edges had a serious problem. That was a systemic problem caused by aging and we didn't have enough wing leading edge panels to replace them. And we would have had more frequent accidents if we would have continued to fly the space shuttle. So... I want to go into your conversation with with Eileen about the 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 mindset that that crew went on after all this happened, and I want to hear some of the you know, teasing story that then people can hear on that. But one personal note: so I I'm in LA and I went to see the Endeavor when he retired at the at the Space uh, Science Museum. And, you know, I'm like starstruck. I'm like, that's the space shuttle, right? So I go underneath, I see the engines and I go underneath, I see the panel and I'm like, boy, those are burned. Like this thing is being used, right? <laughs> like my impression. And then, and then I saw in the return of the Artemis a couple of months ago, a month ago, how the, the capsule that came back was so burned. And I'm like, yeah. I don't think we understand the kind no, of um, energy <laughs> that you that you guys get coming back. So when you no, point that out, it's, I mean, it's crazy. Yeah, what, what people don't realize, you know, Challenger happened, and you have two very dynamic phases of flight, which are which is are very critical. The launch. Eight minutes during launch, many things could go wrong. You have tremendous amount of energy, millions of pounds of propellant being burned, combusted in, in very, very high-performance engines, the space shuttle main engines, operating at tremendous pressures, those turbo pumps and, and the materials in those. But one of the things that I was very interested in, because that was – you know, 22 years of my life I studied was the thermal protection systems, entry mm. back through the Earth's atmosphere, the searing heat of entry. You're basically in a fireball with the outside temperatures of about 6,000 degrees Fahrenheit, maximum surface, surface temperatures at points on the wing leading edge, 3,000 degrees Fahrenheit, a very small chip in the coating of that wing leading edge, the size of a thumbnail, and you will burn a hole through the wing and you will burn up during entry. And so I, and, and, and you talk about the shuttle tiles, there are 30,000 of them. The vehicle that you saw probably had pristine or near refurbished shuttle tiles on the bottom of the vehicle. Every time that vehicle comes back through space, it looks like it was hit with a shotgun blast. All divots, hundreds of divots, pieces of, of, of tile material taking out, 
taken out from the underside, it looked like it went through a horrendous debris environment. Crazy. Yeah. So t- <laughs> tell me, tell me about that part where with Eileen, you you talk about her role in putting together, maintaining the energy and the positivity in a team that is going up after that accident happened. And then stuff happened while you guys are up. And then you mentioned this crazy flip, uh, you know, (laughs) maneuver that I had to re-listen it twice because I, you know, I didn't remember it like that that happened or I don't even remember if it was as publicized as it should Decision no. made that they were not planned. Uh, people telling you, you can do it, and you guys on board say, no, we're, we're going to do it because we got to know <laughs> what's yeah, going on. No. And you barely flip the space shuttle under the International yeah. Space I mean. Yeah. Is it, so, it, 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 a lot of people don't understand that, uh, Marco. They don't realize it, but it was truly an Apollo 13 moment. Yes. Probably even more serious almost than, than Apollo 13 for us because we very could very easily could have made another bad decision um, and we would have been another failure coming in during Earth entry. But let me, let me first praise Eileen. I know I do it a lot yes. during the broadcast, but Eileen Collins, she ha- she's the most amazing commander. She commanded STS-114 after the Columbia accident. She has a new book called Through the Glass Ceiling to the Stars. Uh, She has a lot of very good leadership tips. I highly uh, recommend our viewers, our listeners, uh, get that book and listen to Eileen. She was the best choice for a shuttle commander after that accident. And when you listen to to that podcast, and Eileen, because I was always a disruptor. I was always causing problems with the shuttle managers who wanted us to do experiments that were the wrong experiments. I was always getting into trouble. And Eileen had to fight with the space shuttle program managers and flight directors and other people that wanted to have me taken off the flight. And she had my back. And the amazing thing she said, which was beautiful, was she said, Charlie, this was right after the Columbia accident. And if we learned anything after that Columbia accident, we had to listen to every voice and every voice should be heard. Amy Edmondson would be jumping up and down saying, yes, right mm-hmm. on, Eileen. She was one of the few people within that entire agency that understood had the cult, how the culture had to change. Now, okay. I want to talk about the amazing maneuver, right? Yes. So this is, for the viewers, I have a little miniature version of a space shuttle where about 600 feet underneath the space station, we have a brand new maneuver. Eileen does a backflip. And the people (laughs) on board the space station are looking at the belly of the vehicle. They're photographing it. And what they see are two pieces of this very small piece of felt sticking out about an inch right near the nose of the vehicle, right about here, Mm -hmm. right? And these really excellent researchers at NASA Langley immediately said, this is a problem. They did the analysis, they wrote a report, and they said, we have to do an emergency EVA because if they do not go under that vehicle with the robotic arm and a crew member during a spacewalk and pull it, 
What will happen during earth entry is we will trip the boundary layer, which is the thin layer of flow right next to the skin of the vehicle. It will shed these vortices and our wings would burn up. There was a lot of discussion on the ground as to whether or not we should do this. They sent the report up to us on orbit. Um, and in my, I think I showed this once before in my crew notebook, I had the list of the friends of Charlie of all the key researchers on the ground. One of them was the person who wrote that report. And I called him up on the software activated phone on space station. When we called down by satellite to Marshall Space Flight Center, it'll go directly to your cell phone. And I get the researcher at NASA Langley, Tom Horvath, and we're going to have him on the ITSP podcast, Leading Edge Discovery. Cool. I don't want to take away from what he was thinking when he got this telephone call from me. But needless to say, I spoke to the man and I told Eileen, we absolutely have to do this emergency spacewalk. We did. Soichi Noguchi and Steve Robinson went out there. They saved the day. They took the two pieces of gap filler out. And if we didn't do that, it was proven on the very next flight that had a, a gap filler out that it wouldn't have fallen out during entry and we would have lost our vehicle. Amazing, amazing story that not too many people know about. No, I, no, no. I, I think there's so many things that, again, that you've been talking about on that episode that for me, it's, it, it's like, I mean, you even talk about it was the first time that you could connect directly to people on, on Earth. I mean, you mentioned that they couldn't come through, like people couldn't call, hey, I'm going to call Charlie, see how it's going, right? But but they you could, could right? right? Yes. And yes. And then, and, and the fact that that was also a new thing, like you before, you had to go everything through commands. Mission control. Mission control, and, yes. That's right. And the other thing we say on that podcast we talk about how there was no trust. Our crew had no trust with the decision-making capability of the people on the ground, mission control. I mean, we trusted our trainers. We had the most amazing training team that prepared us for anything we could imagine on orbit. And I want to give a shout out to all those amazing people, Juan Garriga, uh, Jeff Sugar, uh, Mike Grabois, and, and our whole training team amazing, amazing job, but we had no trust. And so as a crew, we had an agreement when before we flew that every night before we packed it in and, and went to bed, we would call down and talk to the head of the astronaut office, Kent Rominger, Captain Kent Rominger, and only he would be on the comm loop. No flight directors, no one from mission control on that loop. Totally unheard of. Because we did not trust the ground. It's very, very, very hard to believe in a way. I mean, I, I of course, I believe you. I mean, <laughs> but, but in general, like, so I'm thinking branding, right? I, I don't know. I'm going to go on this on this lane right now. So a company uh, decide to have a certain brand, a certain you know, people get a feelings where they hear, I don't know, Apple or Nike or, you know, and it's built through advertisement, through marketing messages, but also it's built through eventually, especially now more and more nowadays, driven by your action. So it's not just talk, 
is actually walks, right? And exactly. Yeah. But it seems to me that I say it's incredible as unbelievable because you always as a regular fan of NASA and space that when you guys go up there, everything is, I mean, there is that risk idea, of course. I mean, there are risks. Otherwise, everybody would have already done it. But when you kind of discover this piece of information that you're shedding here and Eileen and all these other people, it's it's kind of like, God, it was like a big branding marketing maneuver here from, from NASA to pretend that everything was perfect versus no, it's not. So no. Yeah. with that in mind, my, my question is, as you move forward, as you've been shaking and, and trying to bring this message for the safety of, you know, as your career has become after that, where do you think we stand now? Did, did we improve? I mean, we're going back to, to the moon soon. Uh, how do you feel about that? <laughs> no, that's, uh, you know, people will say, well, why did you fly if you didn't think you were safe? Well, I flew because that was my job. And I worked with people on the ground throughout the whole return to flight before I was even assigned. You know, we were developing the, the techniques and putting together the teams to actually understand what an impact would do rather than the terrible uh, uh, programs that people were using, thinking they understood impact and how to predict impact. We did it. We did it with a research team to do that. We developed the repair technique that I flew in space. And so I felt on my mission, the odds were the same as they were for any other shuttle mission, at least one in 100, one in 67. And those were the odds we all signed up as astronauts that we would take that risk. And our mission was really to test a lot of this new technology to make sure that we can make sure that the next, every one of the successive shuttle flights would fly safe. So I, I took that on as a mission. I, as, a, as an engineer or researcher, this was an ideal mission to fly on with an amazing, amazing crew. So that's why I did it. What do I think? Where do I think NASA is now? I think we are far worse than we were even right after the Columbia accident. And I say this because I was a member, I was a deputy in the NASA Engineering and Safety Center. And I could tell you that the culture was severely worse within that organization than it was in the shuttle program before the Columbia accident. And so this independent technical authority, which was supposed to satisfy the recommendation of the CABE, was neither technically excellent or independent. In fact, they were working hand in hand with the shuttle program to help the shuttle program provide flight rationale rather than looking at every single anomaly. So I think the system is broken. And unfortunately, we're never going to be able to fix this problem within the, within the agency. We need a totally independent, highly technical organization that is separate from all of NASA, just like the Aerospace Corporation basically mm. reviews the safety of every single DOD launch and weighs in as to whether or not it's safe or not. Totally independent, totally independent stream of funding and governance than the Department of Defense, and they weigh in as to whether or not you're safe. Remember, at the 
as at the next mission, right after our mission, I stood up with two other people. Yeah. I was the director of engineering. I stood up and said we shouldn't fly. I was fired. The other two people basically relented and signed the certification for flight readiness, but with a caveat. And I recommend people go and look at why the chief engineer and head of safety and mission assurance changed their mind. And so our, our agency is much worse than it was pre-Columbia. And so, yes, we are going to see accidents happen because NASA is not, and I just learned this recently by reading a very good report uh, by folks from uh, Louisiana State and Mills College assessing the NASA safety culture, right? Um, and NASA is not a high reliability organization. It's really not even a high reliability seeking organization because it really is not a learning organization. We are no, looking, no longer looking at what are the critical problems and how we solve them because we don't have that research culture. And so all the things that Diane Vaughn and Amy Edmondson talk about on what a really good high-performing team, what the attributes are of those teams and what they need to maintain. I was writing a book on high-performing teams and I could tell you NASA is very far from being able to put together high-performing teams to solve problems right now. We were able to do some, and I was fortunate enough to be able to do some, but by and large, the NASA Engineering and Safety Center missed a lot of critical problems that they were never able to solve. Lot to think about here. But uh, one thing that I'm also thinking as we start wrapping this conversation and always welcome to keep having this conversation. I know you will on your podcast, but also with me. And we talked about maybe having some panels and have this much open conversation. Yeah. I want to touch on on um, on the STEM, uh, on the people themselves. So the culture sometimes, it doesn't reflect the people, right? You find yourself in an organization and, and you're kind of like, I'm either going to walk away or if I want to keep a job and try to do my best here, I need to work by the rule of the organization. So that sometimes may be toxic, and many times it is. But I know you're doing a lot to mentor, to inspire people to come into STEM, to become explorer and, and do science. So I, I want to kind of end on a positive term, which is, yeah, I'm hoping this can be fixed by people that really want to do things in the right way. Because, and I'm going to throw you another idea, maybe so you can you can talk about that. Is when you, you know, when you send people to space, we spend a lot of money. Uh, people always criticize why we go into space, and I say, well, you go to space because we make our humanity better. That's usually my answer, right? So people believe in doing these things. So do you see a new generation, a new creating possibly a much better culture so we can keep discovering and people like you take the risk for a much bigger vision and, and goal than, yeah. than business? 
Marco, thank you so much for getting me back on track. Because <laughs> when people listen to me, they they say this, they, they look at me and they think, oh, this guy is a whistleblower. He's throwing stones. No, I worked within the organization for 17 years after I was reassigned, constantly trying to fix the system. And I think I have a methodology that will work. And I always try to recommend ways to save this, save the culture and, and bring them up the chain, even when I was a member of the NASA Engineering and Safety Center. And so I, I do believe it's fixable. And I think it's a return, return to the future, back to the future, back to our core ideology, what made us great. And so the podcast series that I'm having, I'm the next series of episodes is going to be introducing the people to the great heroes that have that wealth of information that were researchers that helped us solve these problems to show people what it takes. And really, it takes more people getting advanced degrees and not just coming out of college, but you need an organization that allows them unfettered access to funding and technical mentors 10, 20, 30 years, so they can become the experts that you're going to hear on our podcast. And that's what's wrong with the country. If we don't do this, China is a very, very real threat, not only financially and economically to this country, but to the safety of this country. This is for us to solve these, these problems. And so it speaks a little bit about uh, my, my um, Epic Education Foundation and teaching young yeah. kids how to do this and young engineers how to do this. We teach them how to work together in teams, how to develop psychologically safe teams, how to connect the right people and to research and dive into and understand these problems, create these networks to come up and then use their imagination to solve these problems. Because I think this is very doable and we have to fix the education system in this country. Why go to space? Because for exactly why Kennedy said, we don't do this because it's easy. We do this because it's hard, because <laughs> we are expanding that knowledge, which is what researchers do. And that knowledge, just like it did after Apollo, feeds back into our economy, helps us fly safer, helps us to create new knowledge, new technology that makes this country better, makes this world better makes us a, a safer place to live environmentally. Uh, I mean, I could go on and on. And I really could, on the other side, really praise NASA for why we need to do space, really. Yeah. But let's do it right. Absolutely. And I, I, to, to close this, is I, I wanted to bring you back into the positive note, because at this point, I, I know you enough to know that the reason why you do this is because you're extremely passionate and you won't shut up in front of, you know, an issue that you need to to and we take in your risk. And I think the basic lesson, also, again from the the conversation on your first episode, that when Eileen said, "I would not allow somebody to just stay silent. Everybody on the team had to speak." And I think that's exactly where we can wrap this conversation, talking about a silent safety culture. It's not going to work. So we need people that are passionate. They want a better NASA. They want a better environment, safer, and everybody can participate. So I, I think it's a good note to end this conversation. And I, and I invite, again, to listen 
And that's why we do all we do on ITSP Magazine, because we want technology to serve humanity and not the business. Like we, we want yeah. everything needs to have a vision and a mission that improve our quality of life. And I know Going Space does exactly that. And, and let me give a shout out to ITSP Magazine, you, Marco, and Sean for allowing me this opportunity, oh. because hopefully we can create a series of dialogues to help address these really relevant problems and let everyone weigh in yes. on, on, on what's good, what's not good, what will work, what will not work, and, and have this discourse, this, this dialogue. A very open, constructive conversation. We don't have all agree. Otherwise, we're not going to go anywhere. But you, no, need, no, you need the people not. that point the fingers. For but sure. you cannot silence. You cannot cancel people. That's not, that's not the scientific way. The scientific method. All right. So with that, Charlie, thank you so much for this 47 minutes of uh, incredible conversation. I wish you the best of luck. I, I really appreciate that you choose ITSP to to have your show on. And I think we can do great things to, together. And I'm excited for everything has to come in terms of the other conversation you're going to have there. And again, as usual, I hope that people to listen to this, walk away from this conversation with way more questions than answers, because only by questioning things we can we can improve. And this is exactly the lesson probably here. So there'll be notes, there'll be links to uh, Charlie's organization, Epic, and there'll be links to anything, Charlie, that you want to share, resources, there'll be links to, to that as well. And of course, to the uh, first episode that I will encourage you to follow that podcast uh, called uh, Leading Edge Discovery. And if you listen to the conversation, you understand why it's called Leading Edge Discovery. You mentioned it a few times. Charlie, thank <laughs> you so much. I really appreciate this time. Thank you, my friend, Marco. Thank you very much. BugCrowd's award-winning platform combines actionable contextual intelligence with the skill and experience of the world's most elite hackers to help leading organizations identify and fix vulnerabilities, protect customers, and make the digitally connected world a safer place. Learn more at bugcrowd.com. Black Cloak provides concierge cybersecurity protection to corporate executives and high net worth individuals to protect against hacking, reputational loss, financial loss, and the impacts of a corporate data breach. Learn more at blackcloak.io. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you learned something new and this podcast made you think, then share itspmagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey. You can always find us at the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society.